From Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College. This is. This is. This is. This is War News Radio. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Sid. I'm PD. And I'm you. Thanks for listening to War News Radio. In this episode, we will discuss the current state of the United States Refugee Resettlement Program following the recent decision by the Trump administration to lower the annual refugee cap to 18,000 entries annually. We spoke with Church World Services, a faith-based organization that is one of the largest charities working on refugee resettlement in the United States, and with a Syrian student at Miami-Dade College who came to the United States in 2012, fleeing the burgeoning civil war. Since October 2001, the United States has accepted almost 1 million refugees from all corners of the world. However, the Trump administration recently decided to cap the number of refugee entries in the upcoming year at 18,000 acceptances, the lowest number since 1978. This comes in spite of the fact that the number of refugees worldwide in 2018 reached its highest level since World War II. The administration justified the recent cut to the refugee limit by citing the crisis along the southern border arguing that the administration needed to devote its resources to deal with the tens of thousands of asylum seekers arriving every month. However, even before the migration crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, the administration has steadily cut the number of refugees allowed entry into the United States every year. In President Obama's final year in office, the ceiling was 110,000. That number fell to 45,000 in 2018, then to 30,000 in 2019, to now just 18,000 for 2020. In some ways, this mirrors the American public's historical apprehension towards admitting large numbers of refugees. In a now infamous incident, the MS St. Louis, an ocean liner carrying 900 Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, was refused permission to land in the United States in 1939. As a result, the ship was forced to return to Europe. Historians estimate a quarter of those refugees later perished in Nazi death camps. Even later moves to allow more Southeast Asian and Cuban refugees were deeply unpopular. In 1979, only 34% of Americans approved of President Carter's raising of the quotas on Southeast Asian refugees. When Americans were asked about refugees from Cuba, this number fell to just 25%. However, in spite of this public opposition, the United States government has often responded with open arms to global refugee crises. In the aftermath of the Vietnam War, Congress passed the Indochina Migration and Refugee Assistance Act and the U.S. Refugee Act of 1980, which allowed hundreds of thousands of Southeast Asian refugees into the United States, despite widespread public opposition to doing so. Amidst the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States raised the quota on Soviet refugees, which paved the way for tens of thousands of Eastern Europeans, particularly those of Jewish descent, to escape strife and come to America. Even more recently, the United States has responded to civil and ethnic conflict in Kosovo, Myanmar, and Bhutan by granting refugee status to persecuted groups from those countries. The Trump administration, however, has changed tack, adopting an America-first foreign policy that sees refugees not as an asset, but as a threat. The headline refugee numbers obscure another important fact about refugee entry into America under the Trump administration. Compared to the Bush and Obama administrations, there are far fewer Muslim refugees being allowed entry into the United States under the current administration. 
In 2015, nearly 40,000 Muslim refugees came to the United States. In 2018, only 3,000 were granted entry. Muslims have fallen from 46% of all refugees in 2016 to just 16% in 2019. Given the White House's near unilateral authority on setting the refugee limit, the current policies are likely to be in place until at least 2021. While the Trump administration's policy shift is new, the process for being granted entry to the United States as a refugee has always been very intensive. The first step for a potential refugee is to register with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. Officials perform an initial screening and refer qualifying individuals to the U.S. State Department Resettlement Support Centers. In order to qualify as a refugee, an individual must be able to demonstrate that they have been persecuted or have reason to fear persecution on the basis of one of five protected grounds, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. After this step, officials at the resettlement centers interview applicants, verify their personal data, and submit their information to U.S. national security agencies for background checks. These checks include biometric screening and medical tests. If an applicant is found to have a criminal history, past immigration violations, connections to terrorist groups, or communicable diseases, they are disqualified from the process. However, Assuming no problematic results, the applicant is then cleared for entry into the United States. All in all, the process takes around one and a half to two years to complete. The U.S. is obliged, under the International Agreement of the 1951 Refugee Convention and its own national law, to recognize the right of individuals to seek asylum in the U.S. However, as Sid mentioned, the U.S. only allows refugees through its borders after an extremely long and thorough vetting process involving supranational organizations abroad and national security organizations at home. People fleeing persecution or violence in their country of origin first have to file for refugee status with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And from there, if their refugee status is approved, they undergo a series of in-depth background checks, assessments, health screenings, and interviews to determine eligibility for resettlement in the U.S. We discuss refugee resettlement programs with Stephanie Gromek, the Development and Communications Coordinator with Church World Services. If we're talking about the U.S., um, the U.S. has it's about a thousand days of processing and clearances and um, extreme vetting is uh, is what is what it is. Um, and it's again more interrogation, but there's entities all along um, through the U.S. government. So we have the FBI. Um, Department of Justice, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, the list goes on um, of all the entities that are involved in, um, in, in doing those background checks. And there's, those are, those are uh, agencies that have um, staff both on, on the ground in the U.S. as well as on the ground in that home country. This whole process is extremely time-consuming, and parts often have to be repeated as certain security checks may expire before the vetting process is complete. All this is going on while the individuals who seek resettlement, approval, are having to make difficult decisions about their present life and their future. So now you have the option of being in a refugee camp where you can wait um, again for things to get better back at home so you can go home, um, or you can ask for permanent resettlement to a third country. Once you are um, 
once you are granted permanent resettlement to a third country, you are not allowed to enter back to your home country. Once refugees receive asylum, after deciding to leave their homeland, many go through an intense processing period and wait years in harsh living conditions at refugee camps before finally arriving in the U.S. Even then, their struggles and challenges are not over. Refugees are faced with a new country, a new language, and need different skills to adapt to unfamiliar customs and a new way of life in one of our 50 states. With thousands of refugees from all around the world making their way to the U.S., resettlement programs such as Church World Services have grown to provide an essential support system to integrate refugees into American society. Here in Pennsylvania, Church World Services offers programs that help individuals get situated in their new lives, from teaching them English, providing legal services, employment coaching, and creating safe spaces for people to connect with each other and their culture. In one particular instance, Stephanie discussed how facilitating the creation of a group for women from the Democratic Republic of Congo helped them utilize and develop the skills they already had. So we started this women's group, and of course we had our ideas of what we wanted it to be and what we thought that they wanted it, you know, what they needed. But of course, once they got here, um, they were pretty clear that sewing was definitely something that they wanted to um, to dive into. We were thinking, oh, it's drumming, it's you know, getting together and learning how to cook, you know, healthy foods in the U.S. and those types of things. But um, but sewing was really something that they were very passionate about, and so um, so we have some volunteers. And uh, long story short, we gathered about. I don't know, 14 sewing machines, and now we have a full class of uh, these these women that meet every week and they sew different um, items for their families and, uh, you know, skirts and shirts and um, pot holders and all of those sorts of things. Some may ask what role refugees are currently playing in the U.S. community, and the fact is that many individuals who have settled in the U.S., from Irish immigrants fleeing the potato famine, to Jewish refugees in World War II, to Cubans fleeing communist Cuba, have forged productive and essential connections with the communities around them, and have been contributing members of society. This is why programs such as those that CWS offer are so important. They help refugees get on their feet and support refugees so that they can actively participate in the economic, social, and civic aspects of their new country. The, the economic and social contributions of refugees to their communities is great. Um, here in Lancaster, uh, we did some studies uh, with New, Americans, New American Economy, um, and they found uh, that you know our housing market uh, increased, our, our uh, local GDP increased. Um, we jobs or employers came, big employers came to Lancaster County because of the workforce that's here, thereby creating more jobs for uh, Lancastrians and for the local community. Hmm. Um, and we are not unique to that. That That is a common, um, a common you know, bit of, of contribution that refugees bring to their local communities when they're resettled. So where does this leave us? Perhaps instead of wondering what these people who have come from circumstances most people here in the U.S. can barely imagine it can do for us, we could and should be making a genuine effort to be better educated about refugee resettlement in this country. So there still is time to get to know your local resettlement office and volunteer and get to know who it is that, you know, that we are talking about.
As Alex mentioned, once a refugee arrives in the U.S., their struggles are far from over. Despite the help that refugees may receive, they are confronted with the challenge of acclimating to a new culture and the preconceptions this new culture has of them. We also spoke with Hamza Alturk, a young man now studying at the Miami-Dade College, who is originally from Syria. Hamza fled Syria in 2012, when fighting from the Syrian civil war reached his hometown, Damascus. Hamza spoke about the challenges he faced integrating into American culture. I mean, the main help was my dad, since he already know how everything worked here, and it was already settled. Mm-hmm. So this helped us transition. But I, I still would say that it wasn't an easy one, because I came in my late, my late middle school years, and it was a, a little difficult transition, like first having to learn the language, and just dealing with the stereotypes and the stigma against the Middle East. I, I got mixed reactions. Uh, some of them were fascinated and they asked uh, questions, good questions, but then some asked questions that were ignorant, like, is Osama bin Laden Syria's president? I think asked, uh, do just like Aladdin over there? The joy and memories of home can never be erased from the minds of many refugees, but the dangers which persist in their home countries can put their plans of returning to an indefinite halt. However, Many refugees remain resilient as they come to the United States seeking opportunity to make a better life for themselves and contribute to society. Hamza spoke about some of his own dreams and passions. I haven't been able to return in the past six years because I could be drafted into the military. Right now, I'm hoping to finish my associate's degree so when I transfer, I can pursue a degree in neuroscience to study human behavior and, and the brain. A tension often exists among refugees and their new society. It is hard to have a transparent account of the background of refugees when society often presents their stories in a negative light. This creates a barrier in which a society can fail to empathize with the trauma of refugees and fully understand the history of the prevailing conflict. Hamze recounted his own experiences about what it is like interacting with people in the context of being a war refugee. And that a lot of us are coming here as victims to escape the war, not to start up another war. And I feel like that can be a hard part because whenever we go on the media, we just see a lot of the terrorism going on and we don't see where it's coming from. We just, people just look at it and they're like, it's just a bunch of Muslims killing each other, just terrorists. And I feel like if we just make it clear, and distinct, like the specific sides of of the conflict, because there are many different sides and many different sets, and I feel like we need to make that clear. While refugees face discrimination within the United States, they know their loved ones back home often face catastrophic threats and violence given their proximity to the conflict and are unable to lead normal lives. The reality is that societies do not always welcome victims of war with open arms, and instead reject them with spite and prejudice. Hamza discussed the struggles faced by Syrians unable to leave Syria and those stuck in neighboring countries. And people would be too scared to speak out because this could lead that your family could be taken away. But even back then and to this day, you can't really speak out against the government. So I feel like people are just scared because whenever they demonstrate, they see that hell breaks loose and 
they lose electricity, they lose a lot of resources, and they get very aggressive retaliation from the government. So I would say that at this point, they are definitely, a lot of them are tired and fed up. They want to fight, but they can't, it's not within their means to, to keep going. Yeah, I would say it's very difficult. They definitely cannot come to the United States, but most of them who did have to flee, they went to Lebanon, and the transition there was, I would say, it's even worse than coming to the United States because they didn't get, from what I heard from them, that they also faced discrimination over there, and they were blamed for ruining their economy because Lebanon already had a bad economy, but now they're blaming it on all the influx of immigrants coming. And Jordan closed its doors to Syrian immigrants. This is where people were going initially. I know a lot of people also went to Turkey. Turkey, I feel, will be the one of the friendliest places to transition from Syria. This perspective is one of the many stories of integration and hope that exists in the journey of a refugee navigating a new society. Many refugees remain incredibly grateful that a nation with free values like the United States can welcome them. Yet, what remains in the hearts of many refugees is the hope that their country can be healed and they can return to a place that they call home. At this point, people, they're, get, they're getting tired of fighting. They just want peace. They want things to go back to the way that they were before. And it's, it's a very complex situation. It's not uh, black and white. I can't fully say that this is good or bad, but I do hope that it works out in some way. The administration's policy initiative to curtail the number of refugees entering the United States has a direct impact on the way the general public perceives refugees. The administration has voiced a hostile attitude towards refugees entering the United States, and the narrative of refugee policy is a departure from every administration since the 1970s. President Trump has tweeted, quote, Refugees from Syria are now pouring into our great country. Who knows who they are? Some could be ISIS. End quote. The conflation between refugees and designated terrorist organizations has become especially problematic because it permeates a widely debunked misconception that refugees are somehow linked with extremist groups. Refugees overwhelmingly are fleeing the brutality of militant groups like ISIS, who exert a horrific toll on the resident civilian population. The misconception is especially concerning because it spreads the narrative that refugees are a dangerous and incompatible detriment on American society. Stephanie voices some of these concerns. You know, we follow what we want to follow, what we like to hear. Um, and so, and we have a, to be completely frank, we have a, a president and an administration that um, that is, you know, kind of steering that, that cart, if you will, um, as far as, you know, kind of jumping on that and, and putting out whatever they want to put out that will, you know, be what they want you to hear. The Trump administration's policy promotes the belief that we need to be protected from these refugees that are coming from conflict zones and creates a false sense of fear amongst the American populace. However, as Alex mentioned, refugees are the single most vetted immigrant group coming into the United States, facing many rounds of vetting before they are allowed entry. The hostile tone towards refugees can also be seen in the stories of those who have fled conflict. Hamza remarks how many Americans he personally interacted with wrongly believed these misconceptions. 
a lot of people here they they're uneducated about the complex of like the exact nature of it, and I do not blame them because there's a lot of misinformation that we see on the media, having to rectify all the misconceptions about the Middle East. I feel like through initiatives like these, like on, ca- on college campuses, just talking about it and spreading awareness about it is a great first step. And this is why I agreed to do this interview, because I feel this is something that we should talk about more. Another issue regarding our policy with refugees comes down to the false narrative that we do not have the resources and the space to offer these individuals help and safety. Even though the United States is one of the richest, safest, and most developed countries in the world, there is a narrative that we cannot care for refugees. However, in the end, it is more about our prioritization and our political willingness to help rather than our inability to offer a hand. And the United States is in a position where we can, where we have the ability, we have the means, we have the resources to provide. Why does it have to be an either-or? We have the resources to provide service, to provide care, to provide safety. Uh, And really it comes down to just a basic human decency to treat people how you would want to be treated. We have those means, we have those resources to do it for not only our own, quote-unquote, Um, but also for those who are looking to us for that safety and that protection. Thank you again to Stephanie Gromek, the Development and Communications Coordinator with Church World Services, and Hamza Alturk, a Syrian student now studying at Miami-Dade College for speaking to us. If you want to hear more pieces from us, find us on Facebook or visit our website at warnewsradio.org. Thank you for listening.